getting older, cannot sleep, got random pain. In some ways you're wiser, bolder, but you're sweating. It's like rain. Search for answers, getting colder. They can't fix it, can't explain. Your anxiety will smolder. You've become a sex withholder. There's bursitis in your shoulder. Cause you're circling the drain. Circling the drain. Circling the drain. Circling, circling the drain. Down the drain. Hello, and welcome to the Circling the Drain podcast. I'm Ellie Dvorkin Dunn. I'm 44, and I know that I'm in perimenopause because I have very dry hair. Hmm. I'm Julia Granaki. I'm 45, and I know I'm in perimenopause because exercise doesn't really do anything for my physique <laughs> anymore. Great. Nothing. Great. Yeah. Ellie, tell, tell me more about your... What's going on with that? It's just my hair has changed. We've talked about not recognizing our bodies, our meat sacks. I don't recognize my wig. The hair on my head is just suddenly completely different than it ever used to be. And you know, you revolutionized my life by telling me to buy this oil. And I would never had thought that I needed hair oil. And when I do put the hair oil in after a shower, it definitely does. If, if I put the hair oil in and I style it, meaning I do any kind of blow drying or curling iron, if I don't, if I don't, I, I cannot, I'd look like a crazy hag person. Like one side of my hair is wavy and one side has given up and doesn't know what it wants to be. <laughs> and it's all just very frizzy and spazzed out. And I find it upsetting because one thing I always liked about myself was my hair. And I don't want to have to style it every day. I don't want to have to blow. And then half the time you blow dry it and make it nice and shiny. And then the other day I did that. And then I walked out of the house and it was humid and it went right back to being a spaz wig. So I was like, well, why did I spend however many minutes doing what I did when it's all just going to go down the drain. And if hats looked good on me, I would embrace them, but they don't. So these are not real problems, but I'm just saying my hair is different and I know it's hormonal. Yeah. No, I mean, you're right because I have to be honest with you, t the texture of my hair has changed yes. also. And so, yeah, you're not and you, so you said you're, you're exercising, but it's not changing your physique. I mean, obviously you're getting stronger, what you're just not noticing, like your waistline or something. Yeah. I mean, yes. So here's what I would say, right? I am getting more exercise now, like currently in my life, than I ever have in my entire life. Now, in my up, my entire, like most of my adult life, uh, I had a very athletic physique, like an athletic build. And, you know, in the past, I don't know, like five years or so, it's all just gone to, to shit. I don't know how else to say it, but here's my routine. So obviously, you know, we, we live in the New York, New Jersey area. I'm a commuter. So I walk a ton. That's a natural part of our life out here, you know? And I have animals. I have two dogs. And so I walk them all the times, you know, and I and I don't walk, I don't walk the minimum. You know, I walk, I try to walk them a lot. They need the exercise. So it's usually like 20 minutes or so that they get, you know, with me a few times a day, depending on like what kind of schedule we're on. But in addition to that, I strength train twice a week and do cardio. So I my strength training is paired with cardio as a warm-up, right? So that's twice a week. And then Wednesday, I do Pilates. So I'm getting ex the, the like planned exercise, you know, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then I'm walking, walk, 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 in addition to like all the things like five days a week. And here's what has happened. Absolutely nothing. 
other than the fact that yes, like I'm, a, I can tell I'm stronger. Like I have an easier time, like picking heavy things up and like all of that stuff. And I went from like using five pound weights to like using ten pound weights. You know, so there is, I can track that. But here's the thing, I still have a shit ton of belly fat that I don't even recognize. I just don't even know what's happening down there. I still like I have my body sort of shaped like a tick. Like it just like I have no waist. I'm just sort of like straight. And then I just have this bulging like fupa, right? And then I have like inner thigh fat, which I never had before. So um, I think you're being very hard on yourself. I think you're gorgeous. But I think if you felt your body was more gorgeous in your 20s and 30s, and now you're you're in your mid 40s, like you look freaking fantastic for compared to most people our age, but you you feel you used to look more freaking fantastic and now you're doing all this work. And so why can't you get to where you were? And that's frustrating, right? Well, and here's the thing, like, I don't expect to look the way that I did in my, in my 20s. I think that's like, I, I am fine with aging. What I'm not okay with is not like building, seeing more muscle definition. Whereas if I were doing this same workout, even at like 35, I would have more cut like muscle definition. And yeah, it's frustrating not to, you know, I eat healthfully. I'm gluten-free. There are a lot of things that I do. So I know it's not my diet. I don't consume. I actually have cut out sugar. So that's a whole other episode. And I expect like my body's not responding to these things the way that it used to. Well, that is frustrating. That's the frustration. Yeah. yeah I hear yeah. you. That was long-winded, it's, but that's my I story. I hear you. I think, I think a lot of people can identify for sure. For sure. So, Ellie, I'm going to try this science segment out again. You down? I am. Hit me. Should we try it together? Let's let's try to it. say it together. Let's try it okay. Together. Yeah, I'm going to try it. Okay, ready? It's time for science, science bitch. bitch. <laughs> so, what sciencey stuff do you have for us today? I want to talk about fecal transplants. Fecal. As in poop, I love talking about poop. I also like talking about poop, Ellie, mainly because I have an autoimmune disease called ulcerative proctitis, which is similar to ulcerative colitis, but I'm lucky in that it only affects my rectum. I love saying rectum also. It's a fun word. Instead of the whole large intestine, so it's just, you know, it's this one particular area of my intestine. So um, it's much much easier for me to manage. So like I only medicate when I have a, like a flare which, thanks to the goddess of poop, is not often. You're so lucky with your ulcerative proctitis. What does this have to do with fecal transplants? Well, it's a procedure that involves inserting stool from a donor into a recipient's gastrointestinal tract to treat a condition or disease. Uh, researchers believe fecal transplants work by introducing good bacteria into the gut. I have heard of this being done rectally or even orally, like in a poop pill. I have heard of this. Another friend once told me about this mm -hmm. and she like explained the whole thing and then she ended the explanation by basically saying she wanted to eat my poop. Can I be honest? Yes. I would eat your poop. I would. In well, fact, I, there there are stories of like rogue transplanting where people have put a healthy donor's poop in. A, I'm not making this up. You can look this up on the internet. I'm sure. Putting like a healthy donor's poop in a blender and then inserted that into like cap because you can buy capsules and then they ate it, you know? So it's gross and amusing to think about in, about it in theory. But what we should recognize here is the sheer desperation of folks who are really fucking sick and, and willing to do just about anything to get better. 
Yes, that's very true. So dear listeners, do not try this at home. Leave it to the professionals. At the moment, it's only been approved for the treatment of C. difficile, which is something I have also had, which is just a whole like wild. My mother had it. Yeah, it's terrible. But it may also treat insulin resistance in folks that are obese. My opinion is that the gut is the other brain of the body, and it is the source of all the good and all the bad that we have going on in our meat sack. Everything from weight gain to brain fog and chronic inflammation. So if you have an unhealthy biome and you replace it with biome from the gut of someone who is healthy, it can potentially resolve these issues. It's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Do you think it could help with like my hypothyroid, even though it's autoimmune? Like, Like you said that, right? That it could help with? Very possibly. Wait, Ellie. Why are you making that face? I know we're, we're talking about poop, but it looks like you are actively trying not to poop your pants. No, Julia, my sphincter is fine today. I am simply doing my kegels in preparation for our guest. Oh, wow. Well, who do we have on the pod today? Well, today we have Lindsay Vestal, a pelvic floor dysfunction specialist, and we'll be talking about poopy, pee-pee, and other grown-up bodily functions and dysfunctions. Fun! More on that coming up next. Lindsay Vestal is the founder of The Functional Pelvis, the first in-home pelvic health practice in New York City run by an occupational therapist. She has helped thousands of people overcome chronic pelvic health challenges like incontinence and pelvic pain. Her goal is to empower women and men to listen to the wisdom of their own bodies without resorting to invasive surgeries or prescription drugs so they can heal and get back to enjoying life again. She takes a different approach from other pelvic health experts. In fact, she doesn't really take an expert approach at all. Instead, she relies on her clients to share their expertise about their own bodies. That way, she can offer her the personalized support they need to regain control of their basic bodily functions. Lindsay, welcome to the podcast. Oh my gosh, I am fangirling right now. I am (laughs) so happy to be here, Julia and Ellie. So happy to have you. So happy to have you. So we should tell our listeners, this is our first podcast recording with someone international. It's the Ask Crack of Dawn here in New York and New Jersey, where Julia and I are. Mm -hmm. Lindsay, would, would you tell us where you are and what time it is there? Yeah, I just finished a nice leisurely lunch because I am in Paris, France, and it is 2 p.m. That's that's lovely. That's that just makes me think of baguettes. Do you know the only well, this is a whole other discussion, but like I'm gluten-free. And again, this is a whole other other discussion. I am not gonna dive into why, the why and the what, but the only place I will eat bread at this point is Europe. And I think we I'm not again, I'm not gonna delve into to why, but just making you saying you're having lunch makes me want a baguette. That's it. That's the end. That's my story. That's it. She wants a baguette. I want a baguette with cheese. Lindsay, please tell us your age and why or why not. That makes no, that's not, see, this is how you know it's the ass crack of John here. (laughs) Tell us why or why not. (laughs) Tell us, introduce yourself and please tell us where you think you are in your perimenopausal journey. Yes. So I'm Lindsay Vestal. I'm 43 and I think that I'm in perimenopause because I can no longer need to set a clock to know when my traditionally very predictable period is coming. Mm. I am no longer a solid sleeper, which has nothing to do with my seven and Mm nine-year-old. And lastly, in addition to moisturizing my face daily, I now moisturize my vag daily. 
amazing. I like it. I like it too. I I mean, yeah, I'm all for, listen, we've talked about moisturizing your meat sack in the past and Mm -hmm. the meat sack includes the inside of the meat sack. That's right. (laughs) Nature's pocket. It needs moisture. <laughs> I've never heard it referred to as really? that. Yes. Oh, yeah. It's nature's pocket. I mean, listen, you can hide drugs up there like a pocket. You can. Um, I love push- that that's the first thing you jump to. Of all the things you can put in there and do with it, you jumped to hide drugs. Y- listen, <laughs> you've known me a long time, Ellie. You know why I said that. I do. Another um, time we'll talk about that. But nature's pocket. You got to mo- mo- make it moist. It's moist. true. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> well, a tangent. Before we dive into the talk of the talk about all the things, you know, uh, can you paint a picture anatomically of the pelvic floor for our listeners? I'm not sure everyone totally understands where it's located, what bony landmarks it's attached to, and what purpose it yeah. serves. Just because I think, you know, we're not, we know our bodies to an extent, but that's, it's a weird one to like picture if you're not familiar with it. No, you're you're exactly right. And I actually start all my sessions with clients in both New York City and Paris this way because it is a part of the body that is so esoteric and so unimaginable, right? We don't really understand its function. We don't what does it look like? You know, we refer to it as down there in our culture. So it's like, yeah, let's start with wrapping our head around it. And not only its jobs, but what it looks like and where it is in our body. And then let's talk about how it can work optimally for us. Mm -hmm. So I want everybody to start off with just kind of putting their hands on their hips, kind of like if you were acting sassy, right? And kind of like telling someone off. This is the top of your pelvis. So just kind of naturally where your hands fall onto your body. That's the top of your pelvis. I want you to now take one of those hands and put the palm on your belly button. All right. So you've got, you've got your palm on your belly button and where your index finger lands approximately is your pubic bone. Okay. So this is the sort of the top of your pelvic floor. It's one of the attachment points. It's also maybe where your hairline would start. Sorry, just to to clarify. So my palm is on my belly and my fingers are facing downward. That's exactly right. Yeah. And you may feel like a bone there. And some people, it could be a little bit sensitive, but that is the top of the, one of the attachment points for the pelvic floor. Okay. So keep that hand there. And now I want you to take the other hand and place it to where your pants or your shorts start. Okay. And I know this is a little bit different for everybody, but this is rough estimates and it just helps us to wrap our head around it. Same thing with your hand pointing down where your fingers land is the top of your crack, right? It's the top of your butt. That is another really crucial part and attachment point of your pelvic floor muscles. So now you should have one hand on the front, one hand on the back. And so picture that as like north and south, okay? It's the top. Basically, yeah, like your pubic bone to your tailbone or your coccyx, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So there's two more important points though, that we want to bring into this picture, just to make this a little more three-dimensional. I want you to take both your hands off where they were. And I literally just want you to sit on your hands, just sit on your hands, the palms of your hands. Okay. And now kind of rock back and forth. So forward and back. 
and you should feel your sitting bones. Of course, Julia, with your Pilates background, you're very familiar with this, but these are your ischial tuberosities or your sits bones, right? It's if we're in the best posture, it's where we're sort of stacking up from. And the, this is the east and west. This is the, the two sides of the pelvic floor. So now if we were to draw a, a diagram of that pubic bone to one of the sits bones, down to the tailbone and back over to the other side and then back up to pubic bone, you'd have like a diamond shape, right? Mm -hmm. So that is sort of the, and actually more simply put, I often just say it's your bicycle seat muscles. It's literally the muscles that come in contact with the bicycle seat. Believe it or not, there are 16 muscles, three layers worth in this diamond shape. Oh, I believe it. A lot of muscles. Yes. Yeah. A lot, a lot of layers about or really understand, right? Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I loved that. <laughs> well, and the other thing too, I think it's like, I, I think that women, we think more about this kind of stuff, especially if you're a mom or you've given birth because it's so involved, but it's like, Hey dudes, you have one too, right? Yeah. Like you also right. need it for a lot of reasons and it needs to be healthy for you as well. But I think the kind of out in the world, the main focus is women, but we're like, no, and not that a lot of dudes are listening to I mean, I hope a lot of dudes are listening to this show, but you know, it's like, this is good knowledge for them as well. The Rules second action. part of Julia's question actually was, so now you've, you've told us where it is and then yeah. what, what purpose does it serve both for men and for women? And I know that that can be a really long winded answer, but just wh whatever. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. Short and concrete and simple because, you know, I could, I, this is my life's work and I could go down a whole rabbit hole with yeah. it and I very often, um, but make it short and simple and sweet. There are three main jobs for both men and women of their pelvic floor. The first is elimination. So that's both getting urine and bowel movement out when it's appropriate and time to go. And on the other side of that, it's keeping it in when it's not the right time to go, right? Opposite sides, but very important mm -hmm. jobs. The second big job is intimacy, right? So being able to participate in whatever you define as intimacy, having it be pain-free, having it be comfortable, being able to achieve orgasm. And lastly is support. So this is sort of the, the basket of our being. It's, it's the foundation of our core. It's part of our inner core muscles. And so it's, its job is stability and security and support. Yeah, ahead, Julia. I mean, it's, you know, completely foundational. And I when I'm working with clients, I'm always, um, especially men, my way of kind of engaging them or trying to, to find it. I always say, and like to our listeners, if you're thinking about it right now, try not to pee and fart at the same time. Oh, I just did that. Yeah. That's your pelvic floor. I, I succeeded. I neither peed nor farted. Just <laughs> so good job. Thanks. Um, <laughs> So, okay, Lindsay, now that we know where it is and what it does, will you tell us about how you came to do this work? How did you choose to become a pelvic floor therapist and what is involved in the work you do every day? Yeah. So just like you guys talk about, because I've listened to all of your episodes, I said, I said I was a fangirl and I meant it. Oh, um, just like just like you guys talk about all the time about how, you know, we really need to be an advocate for ourselves, right? We really need to, to make sure we're getting, we're heard in a medical situation and a healthcare scenario that our, our needs are being met and then we're being heard and that we're steering the ship, right? We're in charge of our own healthcare. And I really came to this because so short version again, is my father had 
uh, bladder cancer. And I saw him from very outgoing being to a very introverted person due to urinary frequency and urgency. And at the time, I was actually a choreographer and a technical writer, and I had no idea that I was going to become an occupational Excuse me. Therapist. I'm sorry. What is a technical writer? I don't know what a technical writer is. Yeah. It's just a really geeky person. Perfect. <laughs> Who loves to break down complicated information and make it really simple? Oh, so oh, I wow. this. this is kind of perfect in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> the foundation, like, yeah, because for I did it for a software company, which was incredibly boring. Mm. But I always kind of I love this idea of taking esoteric, complicated material and making it accessible and empowering. Mm-hmm. So actually, it, it was the trajectory I was supposed to go on, right? Like, I, I needed that foundation to then segue over into uh, advocacy and healthcare. So I learned about pelvic floor therapy through his experiences. And then when I started my own private practice, I was serving pre and postnatal people. Mm. And, you know, what's amazing about that is there's so much overlap between a pre and postnatal person and a perimenopausal and menopausal person, because they're both completely underserved. They're told oh, this is normal. You know, we don't really have much to tell you to get a glass of wine. I mean, you're just completely dismissed for whatever you're experiencing. And the other similarity between the two groups is a lot of people will experience their first pelvic floor symptoms, you know, in their menopause, perimenopause era that will often link back to an obstetric if I cannot say that word to save my life, an, an obstetric event, right? Oh. So something that happened during- <laughs> My favorite during- word. Yeah. Try to say it five times. It's, it's, I can't say it once. I can't can't even say it once. No, (laughs) me either. You did a good job. Congrats. Much better than me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so you're saying an obstetric event and, you know, so we're saying like a, basically like a complication during pregnancy is what we would, that would translate to. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's some of that. So my, my story started from, you know, helping my dad to segueing into the pre and postnatal field. And now here I am a perimenopausal person myself, and I'm really starting to see the, all of the overlap between not being heard, not being seen, not being validated and not being given all of the options. Right. And I, it is very annoying when you go, Ellie and I talk about this a lot when you go to a doctor and they're like, well, this is your life now. Mm-hmm. Or this is normal. And it's like, is it though? Like, does it have to be? Mm. Right. You know? Exactly. Exactly. And you know what I love to tell my clients and I reassure them that this is not just a part of getting older. This is not just a part of having a baby, right? Yeah. There's enough evidence out there that supports you know, two of the biggest modalities to help a perimenopausal person is topical estrogen and pelvic rehab, right? Those combinations alone can really, really help us overcome a lot of the main issues that lack of estrogen and all the other changes happen. And what's really crazy is I was just reading this morning that one in five women, whether they've had a baby or not over 40 experience anal leakage. And no one is talking about it. No one is talking about it. It, It's a thing that should be talked about because it's poop, right? Everybody poops. And then it suddenly becomes the most taboo, embarrassing thing. Mm -hmm. And if we would just talk about it and realize how normal and common it is, people could be helped instead of feeling ashamed. It's our society is so upsetting in this way. Yeah, Yeah, just a little too buttoned up. It's, it's 
bizarre. Oh, completely. Which is why it's good that you're in Paris because I feel like the Parisians are not so buttoned up. <laughs> no, not so much. Not so much. No. Well, this seg. Oh, in in Paris, uh, pelvic floor rehab is actually uh, given to you in your home, covered by the government uh, with a small copay after you had a baby. That's just sort of the standard of care here. Ellie, yeah, when so- are we moving? Yeah, ex- um, soon. So we'll have all of the baguettes and all of the in-home pelvic care that we need, that we need and want all the cheese and all the bread and all the pelvic help, all that nature's (laughs) pockets. This segues very nicely into my next question because I, it's about urine leakage, (laughs) which is something that I, I struggle with, which basically like, and for me, it's interesting. I, I try to keep track of it because it kind of changes with my menstrual period. I still, and by the way, I, as, as our listeners know, if you've been listening this all this time, I do not have kids. So a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm having this problem because I had a baby, but I didn't have a baby. So, you know, and, and I do Pilates. So you would think that I would have better, you know, pelvic floor control, but obviously I still need to work on that. But um, yeah, sometimes when I laugh too hard, Or the worst part is sometimes when I'm jogging or yogging, if you would like to say it with a soft J, (laughs) I feel like I'm just kind of like something's, you know, yeah, like a little is going to like come out if I run a little bit too uh, fast. And then, you know, I know Ellie also struggles with uh, urethral inflammation issues. Yeah. And and as we were, yeah. Mine is anxiety related, I've come to realize. And it's another strange thing. You wouldn't imagine that anxiety would give you an inflamed urethra. I'm sure Lindsay would imagine because she's dealt with everyone. But my problem has been on and off for so many years that my husband has now nicknamed my urethra Franklin, urethra Franklin, like urethra Franklin. So we just talk about it as my Franklin because we got so sick of saying the word urethra around my house. Urethra. That's also a hard one to say, urethra, urethra. Franklin's nicer. Oh, Franklin. Uh, you know, and these are all like very, you know, unsexy things to talk about, right? Again, you know, with anal leakage, kind of in the same, it's the same idea, yeah. but we like talking about it because we think it's important to be honest so that our listeners know that they are not alone. Also, I've already, like I said before, so Ellie does have a child and I don't, and we're, you know, we're still struggling with these issues. So even though childbirth might impact some of that, it obviously doesn't, it's not the sole, you know, reasoned, but we know this can all be a result of aging and or can be symptomatic of pelvic floor dysfunction. And in fact, I'm sure there are women out there who who don't even know they have pelvic floor dysfunction or that there is anything they can do about it. So can you please let our listeners know what some common symptoms of pelvic floor dysfunction might be? Sure. Sure. And as you, as you so eloquently said, I mean, there's so many reasons you might be experiencing these things and it runs the gambit from being a perimenopausal person to just having a baby to even an athlete, you know, thinking about the Olympics right now that just ended, right? An 18 year old athlete is actually pretty common to have urinary incontinence. And you might think, golly, like you just, you just spoke about three very different beings, right? Three people in three different parts of their lives. But the thing is, is that the pelvic floor is really our, our core function, right? So everyone talks about, you know, especially like in Pilates and and whatever, right? Like it's very trendy to go work on your core. And I I think most people just think about that being your abs, right? Like Mm -hmm. having a six pack when really it, it couldn't be further from that. 
because I would say the two most interesting and relevant parts to our core are actually our respiratory diaphragm and our pelvic diaphragm. And our pelvic diaphragm are those 16 muscles that we talked about earlier. And it's the respiratory diaphragm. So our when we take a breath and, and just the relationship and the interabdominal pressure changes that those two, those two parts of it, they're like parentheses of one another makes such an impact. And so we often start there, right? It's like often so much more interesting than just the 16 muscles of the pelvic floor. There's so much about like roles and habits and routines and posture and and management of stress. Like Ellie was talking about, you know, there's so many more interesting ways, right? So let's just say that I very rarely give my client wherever they are in their stage of life, you know, three sets of 10 of any exercise. We're often looking at their habits. And let's say like, if they're, they're straining to push urine out, we call that like power pushing or power Mm -hmm. peeing, Mm -hmm. you know, we're looking at lifestyle and lifestyle design and, and stress management because so much of that, so much of our nervous system regulation has to do with the pelvic floor. You know, it's such a part of our identity. It's such a part of feeling safe. It's, you know, connected to the psoas muscle, which I mean, I know you must be familiar with Julia and that's, that's so much around feeling safe and protected in our body, in this world, you know? And so, you know, I'll see things like urinary leakage, like you mentioned, like laughing, coughing, sneezing, stepping off a curb. I'll see urinary frequency, which is peeing more than once every two to four hours. I'll see, you know, pain with intimacy. And this Mm -hmm. could, again, doesn't have to be postpartum, right? It often is in that, in that perimenopausal time. I'll see, like lack of stability and control. So I have a lot of physical therapists who send their clients to me because someone comes with low back pain yeah. um, or, you know, and, and they, the, the therapist was amazing. The client followed their home exercises to a T and the pain was still there. And so sometimes the pelvic floor, because we have the ability to do an internal exam if we, if we think it could help, sometimes we're able to find that missing link in those cases And then all we need to do is talk about coordinating it again and and tying that in with lifestyle and breath and becomes really interesting and really all encompassing. I, I find it so fascinating. And I think that in America, particularly, we are doing ourselves such a disservice by sitting at a desk so much because that's what a lot of the population is doing. And I'm I'm not a professional like you. I don't know the ins and outs, but I'm going to imagine that that's not good for your pelvic floor. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that expression, you know, smoking is the new sitting, right? I'm sure we've all heard that. It's, it's, it's really, it comes down to being static in any posture, right? right. So, so movement, movement is really one of the best things that we can do, right? For heart health, brain health, bone health, mental health, every, you know, and kind of being aware of those choices that we have, especially now that so many of us are working from home, right? We have this option of maybe able to take a walk while you're walking circles in your living room. No one's going to look at you like you're crazy because you're not in the office, right? So just kind of being aware and making it fun and enjoyable and not punishing yourself, but looking to a means of prioritizing good self-care because these little small moments in our day add up. And I actually find that really empowering. So instead of waiting for, if I I'm lucky to squeeze in a 45 minute gym sesh, right? Like mm-hmm. why not think about like, like my posture and the way that I'm, you know, leaning over the sink to spit out my toothpaste, like all of these little moments, like are, are, are it not only brings us back into our body and makes us very mindful, but it becomes moments to reconnect to our core and pelvic floor. And that way we're not waiting for that one moment to, to, you know, get my ab exercises in to help with a problem. And it, it just, 
it can become a really mindful way to recenter yourself and correct some of the issues you might be dealing with. I love how you encourage people to listen to the wisdom of their own body. We talked about that earlier in your bio. So we talk about functional and integrative medicine on the pod quite a bit and how viewing the body as a whole is so important, obviously. So with that in mind, I know that pelvic floor dysfunction can really impact the body in ways that are not obvious, like constipation, for example. Yeah. So you, you yeah. talked about, you know, obviously some of the more, the, the, the urinary leakage and pain during intercourse. What are some of the less obvious ones? I love that you brought that up because I'm actually writing a course right now about the role of, about bowel movements and, and how that's just a healthy part of our life and how that's so con- intimately connected to the pelvic floor. So I love that you brought that up. Well, we and like talking I'm, about poop, so we do. it shouldn't yes. be a surprise. And you know, the thing about poop that's really um, interesting and amazing is that it's a way to regulate hormones. So when we managed, I would say, you know, constipation can be a huge driver of urinary frequency and urgency and pooping helps balance hormones. And so I, you know, working with a menopausal perimenopausal person, I'm talking, one of the first things I bring up is I ask them about their bowel movement, their function, the way it looks, how often they're going, because it's a huge way of being able to control some of that, some of those issues that we're experiencing. Why do I hope you have the answer to this. I hope so too. (laughs) (laughs) Why do women in their perimenopausal years, not all women, many women, suddenly have nocturia, which is waking up at night to pee? I used to be able to sleep through the night and not wake up once. And now it's a minimum of one time and sometimes two to three times. And I am emptying my bladder fully. And even if I've had nothing to drink, I'm having a few full peas per night. What's that about? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of different reasons this could be happening. First of all, it actually is quote unquote normal over 60. Um, I know you're not there yet. It actually is normal. Um, if you're pregnant, it's normal, but if it's not one of those two cases, as it is for you, Ellie, um, I would say that there's a few things going on. Number one, I would first look at your hydration. So a lot of people aren't drinking or, or sipping water. They're sort of playing catch up at the end of the day, or maybe front loading in the beginning of their day. And the body doesn't work like that. And it doesn't hold on to hydration. It really needs like sips throughout the day. So the first thing I would look at is hydration, because believe it or not frequent urinary frequency is often a case of a dehydrated system, which seems really counterintuitive, but it's something that we see a lot. So my first, my first question would be about your hydration. My second question sometimes is a side effect of some medications that we're on that when we lie in a, on our backs, you know, the heart has, doesn't have to work as hard to pump fluids up Mm. to kind of help with circulation, right. And like blood clotting and things like that. So sometimes like medications can make that happen when our body is in a little bit of a restful state like that. And then some of the other things that come to mind for me is that, so estrogen has like 400 different functions in the human body, which is insane. And And one of it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's not just in your ovaries. Exactly. It's crazy. right? And, you know, one of the jobs is to plump up tissues around the perineum, which basically provides what we call passive closure around Franklin, around the urethra. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'm that now. My clients are going to be like, what are you talking about? You didn't let me into that. It's my joke. I'm like, listen to what's going around the tree. 
Um, so it provides passive closure around the urethra and the vagina, and it keeps the tissue firm and contributes to production of lube. And as we adjust to lower estrogen levels, right, the tissues get thinner around the anus, the tissues get thinner around the vagina, the tissues get thinner around the urethra. So that passive closure is exactly what it sounds like. It, it enables the urethra to control the start and stop of urine, as well as some of the, that like communication or miscommunication that's happening between brain and bladder telling you to pee. And then my last, my last topic that I would like to bring up Ellie about your question would be, do you know approximately how many seconds the urine stream is lasting in the middle of the night? Like if you had to, to ballpark it. Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Five. Okay. Does that sound really so- long. It's not a true authentic urge unless it's like at least six or more seconds. Okay. And so basically we, roughly speaking, we pee about an ounce per second. Mm-hmm. And so you shouldn't be needing to really have wake. Certainly you shouldn't be waking up with it, your body telling you, oh my goodness, it's time to pee unless you're at a minimum of six ounces in your bladder. So that tells me there's a little bit of miscommunication happening between brain and bladder. So I need to keep my Pyrex measuring cup in the bathroom, pee (laughs) into it over the next few nights and see how many ounces I'm peeing. I'm going to picture you now in the middle of the night counting on the toilet. (laughs) I'm so like- One, two, three. (laughs) I can see it in my mind. Right. One Mississippi, two Mississippi. (laughs) You like how like when we have experts on, I get like- free. I try to get free (laughs) medical advice. I love it. I just learned. I mean, I got to tell you, Lindsay, I just learned so much from this, what you just said. I'm kind of like my brain is spinning and I'm, I'm just so glad we talked about it. One thing I, I also just want to kind of yes. And you on because it's a pet peeve of mine. It is also an opinion. So everyone who's listening, this is my opinion. I'm just going to say it there. There is this kind of like and I'm just going to call it a trend out there in the world about like, drink water, drink water, drink water makes me insane because you are so right. You should be sipping through the day because you can also overhydrate, which is a whole yes. other problem on its own. And I actually think that we have a lot of overhydrated people who don't even know they're overhydrated. You know, you're when you, when the, the cell barrier becomes too permeable, I think that's the right way to put yeah. it you have problems. And you may know, and I don't know, again, I'm not a professional. This is strictly my opinion, but I'm pretty sure you can kind of measure how hydrated you are by the color of your urine. Yes. So that's something to think about too, but I'm glad we're talking about hydration. It's my pet peeve. It's my pet peeve. Yeah. Well, it's like that thing with 10,000 steps, right? People like this magical number of, I have to get to 10,000 steps and people have their Apple watches. And it's the same thing with 10 glasses of, or eight glasses of water, whatever the the measurement is that people have held on to. It's not true for everyone. And if you're drinking it all at once, certainly rather than throughout the day, well, that's just idiotic. But that's what a lot of people do. Fools. (laughs) Well, we shouldn't, we shouldn't call our listeners fools. I don't personally know anyone who just I don't either. like drinks a gallon of water in the morning and then doesn't drink throughout the rest of the day. So I know I no fools. Say, I don't know of anyone who personally listens to this, an episode. <laughs> Wait, what? She, I she, thought she was going to say, instead of, I personally don't know anyone who drinks that much water. Oh. I personally don't know a listener. <laughs> I don't know any, I don't know anyone. Nobody listens, listens to so, those. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I'm the only, you know, no fools. Well, 
We talk a lot about advanced maternal age on the show a lot, mainly because, you know, and I, we, I'm just speaking for our friends group. I'm not going to speak, you know, for like women in general, but although the data is kind of there, you know, we've read this out in the world, but a lot of our friends have had uh, children later in life and it's becoming more and more common these days. That being said, I know there are a number of things women can do both prenatal and postpartum to assist the body in having a baby. And I think this is uh, especially important for women having children in their midlife. Can you tell us how and why women can benefit from seeing a pelvic floor therapist if they are pregnant or thinking of becoming pregnant, especially in, I mean, I know that benefit, they're going to benefit either way, but I think especially, you know, women, I'd say 35 and older. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's, I mean, let's just be honest, right? So the, when you're 35, you're starting to experience some perimenopausal symptoms, right? And, and you guys have made such a good point of letting us all know how vague that is and undefined that is, you know, an interesting statistic is that the average age, a woman going through menopause around the world is 51. So mm-hmm. she's at that, that year, right? That defined year, you guys have defined the difference between peri and menopause itself. So at 51, mm-hmm. There's some biological connection there, right? But before that, a good 10 plus years where most of us are experiencing symptoms. And so if we're also having children around that same time, and so many of the symptoms overlap and can appear the same, we're not really sure which one is the is the determining factor. And yeah. quite honestly, it's matter, right? Because at the end of the day, the types of things that a pelvic floor therapist will help you with are, you know, things as, as well, okay, specifically for a pregnant person, it will be looking at things like, you know, really telling you things that no one's ever told you before, which is your vagina doesn't actually push your baby out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, like most people to this day, because of so many movie imageries, you know, we see that person's grunting and pushing and straining and we think it's the vagina. It's actually the job of the uterus and the abdominal muscles, right? So the pelvic floor's job is actually to relax. It's to soften. It's to get out of the way. And so we would teach them that, right? I always do something called like a birth, uh, a birth rehearsal where we're actually going through what it would, what the, like what muscles we do use and different positions that would aid the pelvic floor and relax and opening up. And then really just daily interesting things. Like we talk about how, how to build a better stool, right? If that's so pivotal in hormone regulation, let's talk about it. Glute strength, good upper body strength, right? Knowing how to manage pressure. So not holding breath, going from sit to stand. We talked earlier about pressure management and how the pelvic floor and the diaphragm are such a pivotal point when it comes to core and core management. And if we want a good core or core that can facilitate childbirth, and then a good core that can help us recover from whatever the childbirth experience was like so that we can participate in activities with our kids, keep up with our kids, feel strong, right? Those are all the things that like pressure management and breathing and all of those things can, can help us with. Yeah. And I think it, I love that you, you, you spoke about the relaxation of the pelvic floor because I, you know, we often, um, when we're stressed or we're in a high stress situation, we clench. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, again, I'm not a mom. I, I haven't had children, but you know, I imagine that birth is a stressful situation. And so you, it's completely counterintuitive, right. To what is happening to your body. So I love this idea of rehearsing, you know, it seems like you, that is a practice. It's a practice, right? Exactly. And who wants to experience something for the first time 
you know, wait in the, in the hospital room with the, with the fluorescent lights and people walking in and out that you don't know. And you're attached to monitors. I mean, already it's a stressful situation, right? Who wants to practice a new skill then? It is not an optimal time when you're sleep deprived, exhausted, you know, really quite fearful actually of what's ahead. Right. So this is why this, this wrapping our head around also being uncomfortable with the unknown, right? And knowing that our birth plan may not go exactly the way we intended and being flexible in that is really important. So true. Okay. I know you're running an online workshop called Kegels That Work, and we will certainly leave that info in our show notes, but are there a few pointers or exercises you can talk to our listeners about, things they can start doing today, or is that too much more... um, Get have Lindsay for free on our podcast. <laughs> I love getting Lindsay for free. I am all about giving out. I'm, I am. I think it's so important that the more we talk about this stuff, the more accessible we make it. It's going to benefit everybody, right? So, so that. absolutely. So, I would say that that just recognizing that the nervous system, right, like has such an important partnership with the pelvic floor is for starters, and we know the pelvic floor is part of the core. So, if we have this desire, right, to have that. Knowing that exercise is such an important part of managing stress and movement is also such an important part of managing stress. And I would go so far as to say moving outside, um, going outside to even do a gentle walk can really help reset the circadian rhythm, which Mm -hmm. will sleep right? It helps prevent loss of muscle mass, which is something we really want to start looking at as we're approaching menopause. And then often exercising helps us make better quality of life choices overall. So once people start exercising, there's been a lot of research that show it becomes like a foundational step for making better food choices. Let's say stopping smoking, you know, improving sleep, you know, as like a thermal, it becomes like a thermal regulator. And then we also know that stress management uh, increases production of cortisol and cortisol is linked to belly fat, right? Yes. So sometimes we'll have clients in who are just don't, don't care about anything except listen, I want my belly fat to go away. When I start talking to them about how stress can actually help with that, they they get start to get really excited about this link. And now we can start segueing into all the other amazing tools that we have at our disposal. So, I mean, those are some simple ones and, you know, knowing that a good, nervous system regulation. So getting that self-care, whatever that means to you, it could be getting your nails done weekly. It could be participating in like an, a two hour long meditation. I don't really care what it is, but the point is, is that having a balanced nervous system is going to help pelvic floor function and all of those other things, because you can be the most wound up, stressed out person, walk into a pelvic floor class, pelvic floor therapist. And if those muscles are clenched and tightened and, you know, really gripping all the time out of this desire desire to control and this desire to be strong, you know, that's going to be counterproductive to us. So going back to that basic idea of breathing, right? When we take an inhale, our diaphragm, that respiratory diaphragm descends down into our abdomen and it should be this beautiful 360 degree breath, meaning like the front of our belly, our back, and even the sides of our body expand. Well, guess what? the pelvic floor responds to that. It actually relaxes and it softens and it kind of gets out of the way, right? Then when we exhale, that diaphragm comes back up and so does the pelvic floor. So simply taking time to do a like, like really just beautiful, mellow breath, one that is, you know, allows that entire abdominal wall to get involved will help that pelvic floor 
kind of get online again, which helps with circulation. It helps with lymphatic fluid going, you know, getting circulated through our body. It relaxes us and it contributes to full range of motion of the pelvic floor, which is actually what people want. They think they want a tight pelvic floor. They think they want a tight vagina, but actually what we really want is one that's capable of relaxing and tightening. Because remember, we talked about those three functions at the beginning, elimination, intimacy and support, Mm -hmm. you need that full range of motion for all of that. So quick example with the elimination, in order to get all the urine and bowel movement out completely, the pelvic floor needs to relax. And then for you not to pee or have bowel movement when it's not time, it has to be able to, those sphincters have to tighten, right? So you never want a muscle that's stuck in either situation. And so just coming back to the basics of breathing is a really accessible way to optimize pelvic floor function. Oh, I'm fangirling. I know. know, I'm I'm fangirling so hard right now. I can't even, I can't Don't you just like in general, when a woman is just as confident and knowledgeable as Lindsay sounds, it just makes me very excited. (laughs) Same, same. And it just makes me like girl crush, like really hard. Completely. Brief follow-up to that. What is your opinion, Lindsay, on pelvic floor devices like the Parafit or the LV? So largely speaking, uh, there's a time and place for those. So I wouldn't want someone who hasn't been assessed by a pelvic floor therapist to get one of those devices Mm -hmm. because let's say they are on the tighter side of things, which I'm going to be completely honest. Most Mm -hmm. of my clients are, they're, they're too gripping. And that means we need to like bring in some buoyancy and some relaxation there to, to help all of their goals be met. And so if you just put one of those devices inside, it's like a game, right? It's a game for your, for your vagina. If you put one of those devices inside, which, you know, attaches to your phone. So you play this game. If you're already too tight, even though it does say like, relax now, and it gives you a pause, if you're not even sure what relaxation feels like, because you haven't been taught by someone, you're likely going to stay in that short, tight place and then get even tighter. So I've seen it exacerbate problems. Wow. I would say that it's better if you know the state of your pelvic floor. And this is a perfect segue. And we did not plan this, but Kegels That Work, my online program, mm-hmm. actually, that's the whole intent of it. It's to teach you whether or not you need Kegels. So the name's a little misleading. It, it really gets, it piques your interest because most people think they need Kegels. Mm-hmm. And then it takes you through a series of four different exercises to figure out whether or not your muscles are too tight or you actually do need something like a Kegel because they're too relaxed. And so once you figure that out, either through Kegels at work or through, a, you know, even better, someone in your area who can offer you a pelvic floor session, you, if you may, you may be appropriate. And I would say, that out of all of the devices that I've experienced, the one that I really like the best is the Kegel. I'll send you guys a link because okay, it, it's a weird feeling, but I like it the best because it has a pillow technology. So you insert it and then like it has mnemonic pressure that you pump it up and it fits. It, it basically forms to the shape and size of your vagina because not all vaginas are shaped the same. They all don't look the same. And so why are we taking a universal device and expecting it to fit every vagina? It just yeah. doesn't make sense. And you're not going to get the right reading. It's going to tell you you squeeze, but if it, it doesn't fit your particular vagina, it doesn't know if you squeezed. That's right? such a good point. That's such a great point because I initially, when I started looking at this stuff, first of all, I'm a competitive person and I like the idea of playing this game with like other women on the app and all of us just like 
squeak, you know, like playing Kegel like war. Like I just, it was just fun to me. And I was like, I'm going to get one for like everybody for Christmas. This is great. But you make such a good point. It didn't even occur to me that, you know, I don't know, duh, like, is it going to fit you right? Vaginas are different. Yeah. Also, all the vaginas it, are different. I'm just upset that I, Juliet, sounds like it's pronounced Kegel, not Kegel. Like the device she just mentioned is called Kegel, but the actual exercise is called Kegel. Oh my gosh. I have no idea. Oh, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, cause we're like, we're always, so Ellie and I are always yeah. talking about these uh, scientific terms and whether we're pronouncing them right or wrong. Cause we're usually saying yeah. them wrong all the time. So that's the only reason that's what triggered this conversation. You said Kegel with such confidence and this is your well, lane. So I thought, oh shit, I've been saying it wrong. I even had a lyric in my comedy show that had funny songs where I rhymed Kegel with bagel. And now I've been sitting here <laughs> thinking I've, I, it was wrong. But you just, you're, you don't know. You don't Here's know. the thing. I can go on, off all day about like, you know, the intricacies of the pelvic floor and it comes down to pronunciation. I'm like, <laughs> I have all thumbs. so, so I, I always joke, uh, tomato, tomato, yes. you know, yeah. eagle. and I, same thing with diastasis recti, which is a whole different topic, but it's where the abdominal muscles have a separation and a lot of, you know, it's actually mm-hmm. normal in pregnancy, but it's such a mouthful. So I always tell my, I laugh with my clients and I'm always like, let's just call it DR because even I can't pronounce it. I love that because it really disarmed. It, it helps people understand like, oh my gosh, she doesn't take herself too seriously, right? Yes. Like this is all stuff that we're still learning and, and mucking through and, and getting better because of it. So I, you know, I always say it so many different ways, but it is based on Dr. Arnold Kegel Kegel, which was, you know, and so I think it is, I think you were right with rhyming it with bagel. I actually think it is Kegel, Ellie. Well, I think we're both right. So let's just move on. (laughs) Yeah, we're all right. Well, Lindsay, (laughs) we've reached the, um, the end of our, of this, of this uh, episode of the interview, but, 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 we have a couple more questions. Well, actually four to be exact. We always end the interview, as I think you know, with, with something called the final four. But before I ask you this question, can you tell us when you are going to be back in this country so that we can make an appointment with you if we would like to? Oh, well, I do offer virtual services and I, I don't know when I'm going to be back in New York City. The COVID situation is yeah. is thrown a wrench in a lot of people's plans. So I would say Kegel's at work, which is really affordable price is honestly the best first step. And then you're just getting in touch. You know, we have a great, I have a great weekly newsletter you can get to be a part of um, called the hump day hustle. And then um, following me on social media. And I usually announce when I'm back. So that's a great way to stay in touch. Terrific. I mean, listen, eat all the, all the baguettes and cheese while you can <laughs> for us. Yeah. I'm dairy free and I'm gluten-free. So, you know, I don't oh. know how much fun, but you know, <laughs> well, now on to the final four. Our first question for you is, what do you wish you understood at 30 that you know now? Mm, okay. All right. So the first thing I would say, how I think of this question is like what I would say to my formal 30-year-old self. And I would tell her to freaking learn how to cook. <laughs> get some- Basic skills, because I don't know, I think must when I was in like my teens or my 20s, I must have thought I was like fighting the patriarchy or something by not learning how to cook. I don't know what was going on in my mind. But like I, I to this day, I can barely I could barely cook myself an egg. So I would say invest in some basic skills. Uh, it's an amazing way to control your health. It's a stress built booster, you know, and you have autonomy because during COVID, when everything was closed down, right? Like that's when it really hit me. I was like, oh yeah. my gosh, I could have so much autonomy and live anywhere I want right now. And I can control the ingredients given that I'm dairy free and gluten free. The second thing I would say is that 
when I was in my 30s, I was just learning the power of saying no. So I would tell myself that saying no gets easier and to embrace it, not to fight it, you know, to really step into it because it's it's a powerful, it's a powerful technique. And I think the last thing I would tell myself is that I wasn't actually old. I think I thought I was old. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah. Isn't that funny? Don't you, if you could take back, if I could take back all the times in my 30s when I said I was old, I would in a heartbeat. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's great. Question two is, what do you have an abundance of? Mm. Oh my gosh. Honestly, I would say, I I mean, oh, this is going to sound so cheesy, but I would say, I would say gratitude because through the pandemic, you know, my business really grew. I teach online education for other occupational therapists who want to do this work mm. and people were ready, were ready to learn. And so, and that's just continue to build. Um, I have an amazing husband. I have an amazing family. I'm here in Europe. I mean, I just, I, I sometimes pinch myself. It sounds so dorky, but I'm like, I cannot believe this is, this is my life, right? I can, I can work from anywhere. It's, it's phenomenal. I think that's, that's great. great. You know, I mean that the, the, the question is meant to, to be cheesy. I think but the word the abundance is such a, has such positive connotation, right? We asked this randomly on a different episode. And we said, what do you have too much of? And it's so funny how just the change in words, choice of words, you know, too much is like, oh, something yeah. negative, but in abundance, you just think, oh, you just suddenly feel really positive. And, it, yeah. and cheesy is good. It's good. Yeah. I mean, no, we have yet to have a, a reaction where someone is like, I have a, an abundance of bullshit in my life. I mean, right. that's, that's, could be an true. So an abundance but, of cellulite. Yeah. And it, right. So but pe- it skews more on the positive, which is definitely. So you're, 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 you're right fine. Third question. What part of your body are you most proud of and why? I am most proud of my hair. You because... have great hair, by the way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you're so sweet because I used to have really dead straight hair. And then when I hit puberty, it got curly. And then when I had children, I got straight again. And now that I'm back in perimenopause, now that I'm in perimenopause, it's getting curly again. So it's like definitely linked to hormones. I am also starting to really embrace my gray and take in like enjoying that. I'm not there yet, but I will use you as inspiration. (laughs) I'm getting there. I have like in my, there is a, there's like a future self I see because I've got the, I have skunk stripes in the right places, you know, right in front of my part that comes down. And I have yet to, I almost let it happen during the pandemic. I, cause you know, nobody was getting their hair colored. It's in my future. And I, I, I'm inspired by you. I wish I could have the skunk stripes. I love those. Yeah, me too. No, mine's just generally. I mean, it's everywhere else too. Yeah. That's fine. That's fine. Final question. What single piece of advice would you give to the next generation of women to prepare them for the transitional changes to come? To find a way to authentically be a pain in the ass. Yes. Not to be, not to be a jerk, to be a jerk. Right. But to like, there's so many times when I was given a given medical advice or, or advice about anything that was just like so unspecific or not what I needed to hear. And if I could have just asked one more question or asked it differently, or been a slight more advocate for myself, I think it would have made all the difference in the world. So, you know, I'm such a people pleaser. I am, you know, I I always want to be of help and get out of the way. But I think that if if you can find a way, sometimes we imagine an opposite, like take this out if I can't say this, right? If I, But you imagine like a bitch, right? Like you imagine someone you don't want to be stepping into that other side where you're asking that next nudging question. But I would say to find an authentic way, a diplomatic way 
to meet that other side to get your needs met because otherwise, right? Like you're not steering your own ship. Mm. Yeah. You lose. Yeah. I love that we've, we've brought the entire podcast full circle to Uh yet again, advocate for yourself and the importance of advocating for yourself and supporting your friends and helping them to advocate because some women just need to hear from their friends that they can ask questions or that they can, they can go at something a little bit harder or that their, their doctor a little bit harder to get more information, you know? And I just want to say, because I know we're supposed to end, but I just want to say that if you do that little bit of gentle nudge, you do that little bit of pushing and let's say the doctor doesn't respond positively, right? Like they, they don't give you that next information or whatever, or they shut you down, go find another provider. Mm -hmm. Yes, for sure. Yes, this is something we say a lot and thank you for echoing it because it's so true. We do have one final bonus question. We always act like it's a surprise, but we do have another one. If you could name your pelvic floor, Lindsay, what would her name be? Funky P. Funky P? Funky P? (laughs) I love that her pelvic floor is a rapper. Yeah. Or a DJ. It's amazing. Lindsay, thank you. We learned so much today. I knew we would, but you surpassed our expectations. This was delicious. Yes. I, uh, this was, I, I mean, like you said, you're like a fangirl, but I, yeah, I'm crushing really hard. And this was so amazing. So thank you so much. You and Funky P are welcome back anytime. <laughs> <laughs> With pleasure. Thank All you right. so much. To learn more about Lindsay Vestal and the work that she does, please go to our show notes. And to help us maintain perspective, we are shifting gears a bit and doing something we are calling deep shit from a wise woman. If you'd like to submit a soundbite from any wise woman you might know, 65 years and older, please email that to us at info at circlingthedrainpodcast.com. The soundbite should be no more than a minute. But before we leave you with that, we want to thank Lindsay Vestal for gracing us with her pelvic floor, a.k.a. Funky P, and all of her knowledge today. You can learn more about Lindsay by visiting our show notes. And if you like what we're putting in your ears, please review, subscribe, like, and share. You can also support us at Patreon by clicking the support button on the episodes page of our website or by going to patreon.com forward slash circling the drain podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash circling the drain podcast. This episode was produced by me, Ellie Dvorkin Dunn. And by me, Julia Granaki. And now we will leave you with this week's deep shit from a wise woman provided by Louise Clayton, age 71. Wise advice. Okay, well, here it goes. Well, I'm 71, but it's only a number. I feel like I am 23. Stay active mentally and physically. Have conversations with your grandchildren, no matter what age they are, because they have so much to share with you. But never criticize them because this is different times. The sad thing is, it's over my head. Life is what you make of it. You want people to remember you when you're gone for your kindness and love. So don't be that crotchety old lady. We feel your pain. You're not insane. You haven't gone down. You're just circling the drain. <laughs> <laughs>